Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Go ahead and grab a seat, and as Benjamin said at the beginning, if you would please move towards the middle of the road, just in case we had anybody come in during the songs there. I want to make sure everybody can grab a seat this morning. And as you do that, and as you adjust to your new uncomfortable closeness, I just want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. If you're using one of our Bibles this morning, it's going to start on page 886, and you can find those Bibles on the back of the seat right there in front of you if you need one. And if you don't have one, as we always say, take that home with you. We want you to have God's Word in your hand, and so that's our gift to you. But all month long, we have been preparing ourselves, not just for the coming of Christmas and the celebration of Christ's first coming, but also we have been preparing for the coming of Christ himself. See, as we've remembered what Jesus came to do, we have also been reminded of what he is coming back to do and of what kind of people we ought to be until he comes. Because yes, Jesus came to give us hope. He came to purchase our peace. He came to show us love and he came to be our joy. But this same Jesus is coming back. As Hebrews chapter nine reminds us, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning, right? Eagerly waiting for the coming of Jesus, longing for him to return and to make all things new, just like he promised. But just because we're waiting, that doesn't mean that we are going to be able to receive him when he comes. See, what the apostle John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel is that this really is the exact same struggle that people had when Jesus came the first time. If you would just look at how John starts his gospel in chapter one, verse one. He says, in the beginning was the word, And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now picking up just a few verses later in verse nine, John adds this. It says, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. See, for as long as the people of God could remember, going all the way back to Abraham and to their first foundations beginning as a nation, the Jewish people had been waiting for their promised Messiah. They were waiting for a prophet who would come and deliver them like Moses had. They were waiting for a priest who would represent them before God like Aaron did. And they were waiting for a king who would come and reign over them like David had reigned over them. And while there was talk, while there was hope, while there were murmurs, there was expectation, there simply was no clarity until that very first Christmas when God introduced his son by name to the world for the very first time. And church, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas this year, We need to recognize that what we're celebrating is the very turning point of history, not just from BC to AD in our calendar, but from confusion to clarity. 
I say that because in God's plan of redemption for his people and for the whole world, where there had been only whispers, Jesus came to shout. Where there had been only shadows, Jesus came as substance. Where there were only questions, Jesus came to provide the answer. Where there were promises, Jesus was the fulfillment. Where there were distant rumblings, Jesus came as the crack of lightning to flash across the sky. And where there had been only darkness, John is telling us here that Jesus came as light. But like John says, when he did, when Jesus came as light, even his own people did not receive him. Jesus, the son of God, the promised Messiah, the king of glory was the greatest gift that God could possibly give us. But if a gift isn't received, it can't be enjoyed. If a gift is not received, then it cannot be enjoyed. And what do we do with gifts that we don't enjoy? Well, every time we simply disregard them. Whether we give it away as a white elephant or, or throw it away or donate it to goodwill, we simply disregard the gifts that we don't want, the gifts that we don't enjoy. And when we do that with the gift of Jesus, what it shows is that we haven't truly received him. Whether that's because we don't really know him or whether it's because we don't really believe him. But either way, we need to see him as he is so that we can receive him and so that we can experience the joy that he promises to give us. And so to help us do that, we're gonna be taking a look this morning at what Jesus tells us about himself throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. And we're gonna ask what it really means to receive this Jesus. So if you would, I'd love for you just to pray with me, and then we're gonna dig in to John's Gospel together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people under your word. And I wanna pray that as we do, that you would show up and move in power, that you would reveal yourself just like you promised to do in Christ, through your scriptures, by your spirit. We're asking you to meet us here, to draw us close, to open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law and to give us grace to surrender and receive Jesus on his terms this morning so that we might rest in him now and forever. And we ask all of these things in his strong and beautiful name, amen. All right, so before we get into John, I'm just curious if you wouldn't mind throwing a hand up if, if you're familiar with some of these things. So who here knows where you fall on the DISC personality profile? Often used more in businesses, right? And sometimes in schools. Look at several people. Okay, some, some DISC folks around. What about strengths finders? Like it's a little bit more obscure depending on the, probably the areas you're working in, but anybody know your top five strengths on the strengths finder? So that's less popular, okay. That helps me get a read on the region. That was something that I knew was big in the colleges around where I was in the Midwest. What about the, the classic, the Myers-Briggs? Anybody know your, your, your four letters on the Myers-Briggs? Okay, now, now here's the test. For, the, for those of you who have your hands up, keep it up if you know what those words mean, right? Okay, so less, right? Less people know what it actually means. I know I'm an ENTP, but whatever that is, I have no idea. I just know that people don't like it when I say that I'm that guy. Um, and then as a, as a nod to Gen Z, some of, the, some of the younger folks, who knows your Enneagram number and your wing, right? Like what, what you are, right? Got a few of those two in the room. Okay, very cool. So, so obviously a lot of us have had to do these kind of things, either in the context of college classwork where we're supposed to work together or maybe in a, in a work setting where we're trying to learn the dynamics of our team. But, but for most of us, if we've had to do them at all, we've probably found them to be helpful to give us some, some shared language and to help us learn what it really means to, to be able to communicate more clearly, to be able to work together more effectively. But, but there really is a built-in problem with every single one of these. 
And that is that as soon as we know somebody's label, we're tempted to just think that we have them completely figured out. And when that happens, we stop trying to learn from them directly in order to discover who they really are. The first place that I really experienced that personally was from a pastor of a church where I was interning about 20 years ago. And pretty soon after getting to know this man, he, he thought he had me pegged because he had us fill out as a team some personality profiles. And whenever I would try to explain that, that you know, some of this makes sense, but some of it just doesn't really map onto to what I'm experiencing, to who I think I really am, he would ignore me and he would chalk it up to me not wanting to accept who I really was and not understanding myself well enough yet. And he would press me to push into those personality descriptions. Of course, that is an extreme example, right? But, but I think this happens all the time, or at least more often than we would like to admit. And when we really stop and think about it, this is often exactly what we do with Jesus when we read the Gospels. See, that is why it is so important for us to listen to him and to learn from him. Because if we want to know Jesus more so that we can love him more, and if we want to love him more so that we can follow him better, then we need to listen to who Jesus says he is and not just assume that we've got him all figured out just because we may have heard the stories as kids or because we've read the Bible once cover to cover and so we feel like we have our heads around it or because we grew up going to the church or, or even because we've seen The Chosen all the way through several times and we're super excited for season four. Although I will admit that's me and I am excited for season four and there's, that's a good thing, but it's not enough, right? And so to do this this morning, to really listen to who Jesus says he is, I would suggest that there is no better way to do that than by going to the Gospel of John and, and really pressing in to what are often called the I am statements of Jesus. In fact, at least eight different times throughout John's Gospel, Jesus tells us clearly who he is. And the question that we need to ask ourselves every time he does is what does it really look like to receive Jesus on his terms? What does it really look like to receive Jesus on his terms? so that we can enjoy him instead of disregarding him. First time this comes up is in John chapter six, just after going public, after starting to do miracles that were catching the attention of massive crowds, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with nothing but a few loaves and a few fish. And as he does that, it, obviously that's gonna blow people's minds, right? And so they start to follow him around all the more asking for more and more signs. Of course, when they, when they ask him to do more signs in John six, Jesus calls them out and tells them directly that they only want him to do more signs because they're wanting another free meal. He calls them out directly. He's not, he's not interested in bantering back and forth. He's not interested in just pretending that they're really trying to look for something when, when what he knows is reality is that they're just wanting another a miraculous sign. They're wanting another free meal. And what he's trying to help them see isn't that they're asking for something too big, Instead, he's wanting to help them see that they're actually thinking far too small. They wanted a, a sign. They wanted a quick blessing that would not last, but they only want that because they didn't realize that Jesus was offering them something so much bigger, that he was offering them something so much better. So they wanted him to meet their physical needs right now. But what he was offering them was he was offering to meet their spiritual needs, not just right now, but in a way that would last forever. And so that's why he tells them in John chapter six, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then a little bit later in verse 48, pick it up again. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, as soon as Jesus says this to them, we get really just kind of a real-time example of what it looks like to disregard Jesus instead of receiving him. In this case, it shows up in how the people start to grumble when he says these things and how they immediately turn their backs on him and begin to walk away because in their words, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? See, what they really wanted were easy, comfortable words from Jesus in order to give them an easy, comfortable life. And so they wanted nothing to do with the words of Jesus whenever those words got a little too pointed, a little bit too difficult, a little bit too hard to digest. But see, that didn't change the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. And Jesus knew that if we want to share his joy forever, instead of just being comfortable for a little while, then what we need more than anything is to feast on him and on his word. Church, that is the first lesson that we're learning from Jesus this morning. He is the bread of life and receiving him means feasting on him and not settling for anything less. And the question then that we all have to wrestle with is are we really doing that? Are we feasting because we know that he has the words of eternal life and there is no place else for us to turn? Or are we still just looking for signs and hoping that religion is just gonna make our path a little bit easier? Jesus is the bread of life but he's just getting started. Because in John 8, 12, just a couple chapters later, he goes on and tells the crowd again. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if you're familiar with the main characters, kind of the, the usual suspects throughout the storyline of the gospels, then it really won't surprise you at all that the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders at the time, they immediately started to try and discredit Jesus as soon as they heard him begin to make this claim. And the reason is obvious. It's because the Pharisees didn't believe Jesus and because they didn't want anybody else to believe him either. But since the darkness can never overcome the light, they were never able to really accomplish their goal. They were never really able to undermine and steal Jesus' credibility. And even though they did succeed for a while in confusing the crowds, Jesus tells them plainly in verse 28 that when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know, then you will know that I am he. In other words, he's saying that even though they didn't get it yet, they were gonna see Jesus lifted up. He's pointing forward to the cross. And again, they didn't yet understand, but he's telling them that when that happens, when the cross happens, when you crucify me, then the pieces are gonna start to come together. Then you're gonna understand who I am and what I came to do. It's because at the cross, when the darkness was working most powerfully, the light of the world was shining most brilliantly. Again, Jesus is the light of the world. And the only way for us to see anything rightly is if our eyes are fixed on him. The question though is, are we looking? More specifically, are you looking to the cross? Or are we living with blinders on? just trying to feel our way forward, hoping that we can navigate the minefields of life without the map of Jesus' death and resurrection where he invites us to follow him, not just into suffering, but he invites us to follow him through suffering and into glory that awaits on the other side. Again, receiving Jesus on his terms means feasting on his word 
and it means looking to his cross. But as we continue, what we learn next is that it also means entering into his presence, which is what we see in John 10. After another dramatic healing, after another tense confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus again turns his attention to the people and he tells them in John chapter 10, verses seven to nine, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That is, Jesus is the door to protection. Jesus is the door to provision. Jesus is the door to salvation itself, all because he is the door into the very presence of God, which gives us all of those things. But if, if that's really true, if Jesus is the door, then receiving him means that we'll never be content to just stay outside and observe God's love from a distance, from the outside looking in. And it means we won't be able to keep trying to find an easier or more convenient or more popular way that we hope is still gonna get us to God in the end if we're lucky. Church, we, we cannot allow ourselves to disregard Jesus by taking either of these detours because neither of them can ever lead us to the Father. Jesus is the door and receiving him means entering through him into God's presence and into God's love. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't wait for us to figure this out. He doesn't wait for us to, to find him on our own and in our time. No, it's that he comes to us. He takes us by the hand and he leads us exactly where we need to be. That's why he immediately adds in John 10 verses 11 to 15 that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. See, the gift of his son, it wasn't just the greatest gift that our God could give us. It was also the most expensive gift. It was also the most expensive because the plan all along was that when Jesus came, he knew full well that he was being born to die. He knew that he was entering into darkness in order to lead us into his light. He knew that he was coming to take our sin on himself so that we could know the fullness of the grace and love of the Father. He knew that he was going to have to become the very enemy of God so that us, God's enemies, could become his children by grace through faith. Church, Jesus is the good shepherd and he came to lay down his life for his sheep so that we could know the fullness of the Father's love. And the question is, are we following this good shepherd or are we still just following hired hands who don't even care about us? See, once we really understand the price that Jesus paid to call us his own, we won't be able to keep saying no to that kind of love. We won't be able to not receive him. But if we continue to disregard him, if we refuse to follow him into the safety of God's presence, then we will never get there at all. And what we're gonna find is that we're gonna be unprotected and vulnerable exactly when it matters most. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the door and the good shepherd. And all of that is true for us. 
not just right now, but it's true forever because death is not the end of our story. Death is not the end of our story. I mean, right, we tend to, we tend to see the few years that we have on this earth as the full story of our lives. And if we're not careful, we're tempted to think that, that death is where everything ends, that that's where our story stops. But for men and women who have been created in the image of an eternal God, this is only the beginning. And the reason I say that is because we aren't physical people who happen to have spirits, but rather God has created us to be spiritual people who he's also given bodies to. And when Lazarus, one of Jesus' closest friends, died in John 11, what he wanted Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, to understand was that death cannot stop God's purposes. This is why he tells Martha in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, what Jesus is promising here is life beyond the grave. He is promising victory over death. He's promising hope that can never be taken away. He's promising a security that can never be threatened. But what we need to see here is that it's only for those who receive him in faith. See, believing Jesus and taking him at his word are foundational. And we must do that instead of banking on our own gut instincts and the theories of people who have never been to or seen the other side. As Hebrews chapter two reminds us, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He took on flesh, we are told, like ours, so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, it's that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Church, again, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And if we are willing to be honest with ourselves this morning, what we all need him to help us see is whether or not we are really trusting him and living with eternity in view. Or if on the other side, maybe we're just disregarding him still and living only for the moment. See, Jesus wanted his friends to know that he was the resurrection. He wanted them to know that he was the life so that they could face their own death with confidence that only he could give. But just a few chapters later, with his focus fixed squarely on the cross, which at that point in Jesus' life was now only a few hours away, he again gave his disciples exactly what they needed. But this time, he wasn't preparing them to face their death. He was preparing them to face his and it's John 14, verses one to six. Jesus says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, just like they needed to understand that their death was not the end of their story, just as much they needed to understand that the death of Jesus was not the end of their hope, but instead it was the very foundation of it. I say that because when Thomas speaks up and he asks Jesus, if you show us the way, that's gonna be enough. Jesus doesn't point to something else outside of him, right? He doesn't point to anybody else. He points directly at himself. He says, Thomas, 
Look at me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life that you're seeking. I am what you are desperate for. See, what Jesus is saying here is that if we want to know the truth and if we want to have eternal life, then it can only come through him. But not only that, he's showing that it can only come through his cross because the price for our life was the death of Jesus Christ. And so if we are seeking truth through a a godless approach to philosophy, if we're seeking truth through some naturalistic approach to the sciences or a fatalistic approach to mathematics or, or some humanistic approach to psychology or sociology or in any other of these opposing viewpoints that are all vying for center stage, if we're seeking truth anywhere else except for Christ, then we shouldn't be shocked when these turn out to be dead ends that leave us just as lost and just as confused as when we started. Again, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life and the simple reality that is that whatever does not lead us to God cannot lead us to life. If something doesn't lead us to God, that it cannot lead us to life. So my prayer this morning is that before you leave here, you will be able to honestly say that you are seeking Jesus with all of your heart and that you were convinced that he really is enough for you. But church, that is only possible if we understand that Jesus isn't just the life itself, he's also the source of that life for us. He's also the source, and that's where we get life ourselves. In John 15, verse five, Jesus uses an an analogy, a word picture to really help this sink in. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. See, what he's saying here is that if we want to experience the life that he has been promising all along, that we have to get connected and stay connected to the only source of that life, which is Christ himself. It's because just like a branch dries up and dies if it's disconnected from the roots, so we dry up and die if we are cut off from Christ. But church, Jesus wants something so much better for us. Jesus wants something so much better for you. See, when he invites you to abide in him, he is promising that he is gonna do all the work. He's promising that he is gonna give all the life you need. He's promising that he is going to share his joy with you, that he's gonna provide his spirit to give you the power you need to obey all that he is calling you to. He's promising that he is going to bear fruit in and through your life. It's not up to you and it's not on you. All you've got to do is rest in him and put your trust in him alone. Just like you go to bed at night, knowing that while you sleep, you keep on breathing. While you lay there completely knocked out, the world keeps on turning. And then you wake up in the morning with a fresh reminder every single day, if you're willing to admit it, that God doesn't need you, but he chooses to use you anyway. And yet God invites us. He invites you along with everyone else who is weary and burdened. He invites you to come. He invites you to come to him because he's the only one who can give you rest for your souls. He's promising that as you do that, that you will, as you abide in his love, you will rest in his grace and share in his joy. Again, Jesus is the true vine and all who receive him are going to rest in him. Another way to say that is that it means we're going to believe that it really is finished and we're gonna live like we really are free. See, this rest that Jesus invites us into, it means believing that he meant it when he declared on the cross with his hands nailed at his sides and he screamed out in anguish, it is finished. 
It's a declaration that all the work is done, that everything that was needed has been accomplished, that we are absolutely set free, and there is nothing that is still hanging on us to do or to add to the work of Jesus. It is finished, church, and we are free. That's what it means to rest in Christ alone. And when that happens, when we're really living that life, when we're really resting in and abiding in this Jesus, we are going to bear more fruit than we can possibly explain, but it's gonna be fruit, not that earns God's love, not that earns God's favor, but that shows that we already have it because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Again, Jesus is the vine, and the question is, are you resting in him? Are you trying to work just a little bit extra because you're just not sure if he's done enough for you? On the first Christmas morning, our God gave us the greatest gift possible. He sent his only son to be the bread of life, the light of the world, the door and the good shepherd. He sent Jesus to be the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life and the true vine. But again, we can't enjoy this gift unless we are willing to receive Jesus on his terms. His terms are strong. His terms are clear. His terms are demanding because he understood that this is really a life and death situation because Christmas is meaningless without Good Friday and Easter. Jesus understood that he was born to die and that he would not have been any of those things he claimed to be apart from the brutal and glorious reality of the cross. And so as Jesus was was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before his arrest, as he was preparing for what was about to happen to him, we learn in John 18, verses three to six, that Judas, one of the 12, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus said to them, I am he. See that, that he, that's added to make it make a little bit more sense for us in English because Jesus' answer to them is simply, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant. They said, we're here looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he leans in and he tells them exactly what the reality is that they're facing. He says, I am Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So one of the most tragic examples that we are given as a warning really in all of the scriptures is Judas. In so many ways, Judas is the poster child for disregarding Jesus instead of believing him. He's the the key example for pretending instead of surrendering for serving himself instead of his true master and for missing grace, even though it was right there in front of him, embodied in his very presence. And here, with this band of soldiers at his side, there to take Jesus prisoner, they all heard the same thing. They all heard the same declaration. When Jesus said, I am, they fell on their faces in fear because they knew two things to be true. 
They, know, they knew that when Jesus claimed to be I am, he was claiming to be Yahweh, the eternal God who created heaven and earth and the Lord who ruled over all of it by the word of his power. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying and it terrified them because they also knew that they weren't there to worship. They weren't there to honor. They weren't there to surrender. They were there to take him into custody and to lead him to his brutal death. And in that moment, that was the choice in front of them. Would they continue to disregard the claims of Jesus and press on in opposition to the Lord of all? Or would they finally receive him? And even in that moment, turn away from who they were and surrender to him in worship. And if you know the story, then you already know how they responded. After they got over the initial shock, they, they picked themselves up, dust themselves off, and in fear, they choose option one. They bound Jesus. They led him away to a fake trial where he was gonna be lied about and attacked. And then they turned him over to be mocked and questioned and beaten and finally crucified. And Judas, who was the spark that lit that fire, he went in his grief and he committed suicide because he never could bring himself to believe that the grace of God was enough, even for him. And why? was because he refused to worship the king of glory. And instead, he could not see beyond himself, beyond what he wanted, beyond what he thought he needed, and beyond what he had done. And church, that same choice is in front of every single one of us this morning. Jesus is the great I am. He is the creator of the universe. He sustains all things by the word of his power. He is the promised Messiah, Redeemer, and King that God's people have been waiting for since the very beginning. He is the Lord of glory and the giver of all grace. He is eternal and strong and beautiful and co-equal with God the Father and with God the Spirit, both now and for all eternity. And the final question that all of the other questions have been building up to this morning is, are we worshiping? Are we worshiping? See, if we stay focused on ourselves, like Judas did. If we keep on believing that it's all up to us and that it's all about us, if we are living like we've got something to prove to God or, or something to prove to those people that are around us and looking into our lives, then we will never be able to say yes to that question. We'll never really be free to say, I'm worshiping God alone with all that I have, with all that I am, because we will only ever in that place be able to worship ourselves. But see, Jesus didn't just come to show us truth. He also came to give us grace. He doesn't just show us truth. He also came to give us grace. And in that grace, he's the one who promises to lift our eyes to him and off of ourselves. He promises to give us faith, to believe his promises and to surrender to the love of the father so that we can receive him. And so that we can do what he's created us for so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth, just like he deserves. And so, yes, as John says in chapter one, verse 11, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But John doesn't stop there. He goes on, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the bread of life. Are we feasting? Jesus is the light of the world, but 
Are we looking to him? Jesus is the door, but, but are we entering? Jesus is the good shepherd, but are we following? Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but are we trusting him? Jesus is the way and the truth in the life, but are we really seeking him? Jesus is the vine, but are we really resting in him? Jesus is the great I am. Are we worshiping? And really what all these questions boil down to is simply this. It's do we believe? Do you believe? Because if we continue to, to press on in our unbelief, refusing to accept Jesus and receive him on his terms, and we are disregarding him, and we are going to miss out on the greatest gift that has ever been given. But if we do, if we do believe his promises, if we do trust who he says he is and what he has done for us, then church, we are going to receive him on his terms and we are going to find a joy that can never be taken away from us. If you would, I invite you to pray with me and then we're gonna respond to God's word together by declaring his glory, by resting in this grace. And if you need prayer at any point during the remainder of this service, I'll be here in the front. I would love to talk with you anytime in the, in the remainder of our response or anytime after we want you guys to encounter the risen Christ. We want you to experience his love for you. We want you to see him as he is and to receive him on his terms so that you can know his joy now and forever. Again, please pray with me, then we'll respond together. Father, thank you.